Last time in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus reached out and he deliberately touched a man considered untouchable because of the disease that he was afflicted with. He had leprosy. And this man, he had been shunned by society and shut out of the worship of the Lord at the temple, but with this healing touch of Jesus, it changed his life. Today we will read about some other people who were shut out and excluded by others. Human beings are skilled at coming up with reasons to exclude one another. Those people are not wearing the right clothes. Those people don't speak the right language. Those people are not the right color. Those people are not from our country. Those people live in the wrong neighborhood. Those people make too much money. Those people don't live in permanent houses. Those people don't agree with my point of view. Those people voted for the wrong person. On and on and on. The reasons that we come up with for including and excluding people from our groups are endless, aren't they? Jesus Christ dismantles all of that stuff when it comes to God by reaching across all of the boundaries that human beings have set up to divide themselves from each other. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, what gender you are, how wealthy or poor you are, how educated you are, what country you are from, what language you speak, or whatever. See, we all suffer from the same fundamental problem that dooms our eternal future. We're all separated from God because of our sin. And that problem cascades down into the rest of our life, making problems upon problems upon problems for us. Because of our sin, our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with others is broken. Our relationship with ourself is broken. Our relationship with the rest of the creation is broken. Jesus Christ came to save us from our sin and restore our relationship with God. And as we are made whole spiritually through the saving work of Jesus and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, we're also being made whole in all of the other areas of our life. These stories of healing in the Gospel of Matthew, which we have been looking at and we will be looking at, serve as previews of the greater saving, healing, restoring work of Jesus that is available to everyone and which will be fully realized in us when he establishes his kingdom forever. Now, I know some people come to church and what they want is, uh, you know, some how-tos about how to, you know, be better at this and be good at that and whatever. But Christianity is founded on historical and theological underpinnings which are important for us to understand and know about. It's not about making people better. It's about saving people rescuing us from our sin and death. And it's a story 
The Bible is a story of God rescuing humanity. So it's important for us to know something about the history and the theology that is associated and which is the foundation for all of this. And that is something that we are needing to take a look at today and talk about today in this study. Otherwise, we won't really understand what's happening in these stories. The Lord God made a promise to Abraham some 2,000 years before Jesus was born, saying to him, through your offspring or your seed or your descendant, all people on earth will be blessed. In other words, the Lord would bring the Messiah for the whole world through the lineage of Abraham. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that amazing promise that he made to Abraham. Although it had been stated all those years ago that the coming Messiah would be for all people, both Jews and non-Jews, both Jews and Gentiles, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, continued in large part to cling to this idea that the Messiah was coming to save them, the Jewish people, and to destroy the faithless Gentiles who they believed were responsible for so much suffering in their lives throughout the generations. But when Jesus came, it was increasingly apparent that he was Messiah for all people, just as God had promised he would be. He was not just Messiah for the Jewish people, he was Messiah for everyone. His teachings said Gentiles would be invited into the kingdom. His actions said that Gentiles would be invited into the kingdom. And then, in the early days of the church, it became crystal clear that Jesus was Messiah for all people. Gentiles, non-Jews, were being invited to receive salvation. They were receiving salvation. Their lives were being changed. And they were brought into the kingdom of God. The idea that Jesus was Messiah for all people was something, though, that even his original 12 disciples, who were Jews, had difficulty embracing at the time. In fact, they didn't really understand that idea until Jesus' death and the founding of the church began to happen. This first story that we're going to be looking at today is one of the first from the life of Jesus, which demonstrates that Jesus would be the Messiah for all people. So flip over to Matthew chapter 8, and we're picking up in verse 5 today. Matthew 8, chapter 8, verse 5. It says, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Capernaum. We've talked about Capernaum before when we were back in Matthew chapter 4. Capernaum was Jesus' base of operations during his ministry in the region of Galilee. And as a reminder, Capernaum was located on the northwest shore, as you can see on that map, of the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum benefited from this major trade road which passed through it called the Via Maris, which brought people through this area from all over the known world. Think about that and the importance of that in Jesus having that as his base of operations, 
the significance that all of these people would be passing through that area right where Jesus was at. It was no accident that that's where Jesus chose to make his base of operations. Well, when it was heard that Jesus was in town, a Roman centurion came to Jesus asking him for help. He said, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. A centurion was an officer in the Roman army who had command over a century of men, a hundred men. This man is not a Jew, he is a Gentile, and this is a significant piece of information in this story. We're told that this servant of his is paralyzed and suffering terribly. In Luke's account of this same story, we learn that the servant is about to die. The Roman centurion is very worried about his servant, believing that his condition is critical, that he is on his deathbed. This centurion, he probably had a number of servants, but this man is special to him. Luke's story tells us that he was valued highly, meaning that he was very dear to him, that he was a precious person to him. This is a heartfelt concern for someone that this Roman centurion cares a great deal about. In verse 7, Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? It was unusual for a Roman officer to approach and interact with a Jewish rabbi like this. The Romans and the Jews usually steered clear of each other. Both groups looked down on the other, thinking themselves superior to the other. And isn't that how it is for people? I mean, we think our group is the best group. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in that group, right? The Romans, they saw the Jews as an inferior, troublesome, conquered people who had odd religious practices. The Jews, they saw the Romans as their hated oppressors. They were an idolatrous, pagan, immoral Gentile. Jews would not even enter the house of a Gentile, believing that it would defile them. The Jews are God's special chosen people. The Romans are little more than fuel for the fires of hell. Jesus, though, is willing here to go to this Roman centurion's house and heal his servant. He's willing to break the widely held social taboo of the Jews in those days and enter this Gentile's home. But before he does that, he asks this man a question that causes him to express his faith more clearly. And then Jesus asks him here, he says, shall I come and heal your servant? It's as if Jesus is leading him, encouraging him, pulling out of him what Jesus knows is in this man's heart. And in, this, in the next verses comes this beautiful expression of faith by this man, which Jesus will then use as a powerful teaching moment for everyone that's present. I want to give an illustration that I hope will help understand how this 
question may have been used by Jesus to pull this man forward in what was there. Have you ever seen a little kid run into a wall of frustration and helplessness over something? Imagine, for example, uh, this little child is trying to tie her shoes, but she can't do it. She hasn't been taught yet how to tie her shoes, so she twists the laces around each other, floundering, guessing how it's done, but it isn't working, and she finally hits a wall of frustration and helplessness and just bursts into tears. You may have seen that kind of a scene before if you're a parent. I have. And you find her sitting in the middle of the floor, bawling her little eyes out. You ask, what's wrong? And she'll say, I can't tie my shoes. But instead of criticizing her for trying to do something that she obviously is not able to do yet, since you didn't teach her how to do it yet, you help her by coaxing her with a question. Would you like me to help you? And in that moment, she is encouraged. She no longer feels alone and helpless. She remembers who she can trust and who she knows can tie her shoes for her. You! And she sticks her little feet out and she waits for you to tie her shoes. Jesus asks this man, shall I come and heal your servant? The Roman centurion, he knows who he can trust with his servant's life. And in this next, in the next verses that come, this man, it's like he confidently sticks out his feet for Jesus to tie his shoes, so to speak. He knows who he's trusting in, and he knows that Jesus can help him. Verse 8, the centurion replies, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. The Roman centurion says he doesn't deserve to have Jesus come into his house. He's respectful of the Jewish social taboo about not entering a Gentile's house, but there's much more than that going on here. He says he doesn't deserve to have Jesus come into his house. He's he's not worthy to have Jesus come. He recognizes Jesus as someone far superior to himself. He may not have a fully worked out understanding yet of all that Jesus is, but he knows That Jesus is Messiah and God is working through Jesus in a profound way. He knows that. And and there's this tremendous humility that's being shown by this man toward Jesus, especially when we consider the disdain that these two people groups had for one another. He asked Jesus to just say the word and he knows that his servant will be healed. 
He goes on to explain that he himself is a person under the authority of another, and he has people under his own authority. When he gives an order to someone under his authority, they carry it out. That is how authority works. He knows that Jesus has authority over this illness that's affecting his servant. And because Jesus possesses this tremendous authority, all he has to do is say the word and it will be done as he has commanded. When the centurion gives an order to those under his authority, it's, it's not merely his own words. It carries the weight of the very emperor of Rome. And when Jesus gives an order, it carries the authority and the weight of God. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. When Jesus acts, God acts. When verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. The faith expressed by this man it gets Jesus' attention. Jesus is amazed. He's marvels. He's astonished by this display of faith. Jesus says he hasn't encountered such great faith among his own people, the Jews. This Gentile, who is thought to know very little, if anything, about the Lord, has such faith in Jesus as the one who has come from God to save us all, that it amazes and astonishes Jesus when he hears him express it. Well, what is it about this man's faith that is so amazing? He understands who Jesus is and what that means. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus has authority over all things. See, it's, it's not about having enough Faith, but having faith in the right one and having faith that expects in proportion to the one that we have faith in. This man really believes that Jesus has authority over all things, and so he really believes that Jesus can heal his servant by merely speaking the word. He believes in Jesus, and so it is as good as done. Jesus, he, he now turns to the crowd of people that are gathered around watching this interaction between himself and this Roman centurion. And he says this in verse 11 and 12. He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Almost all of the people that are gathered around watching this take place are Jews. And the words that Jesus speaks here are amazing and astonishing to them, but not in a good way. These people are shocked by what Jesus has said. The imagery here is of the great banquet of the Messiah with his people celebrating his saving them. Over in Isaiah chapter 25 is one of these 
descriptions of what Jesus is making reference to. In Isaiah 25, verse 6, it says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. He's talking about death. Is the shroud, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth the Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That's the imagery that he's making reference to. And it clearly indicates in these prophecies that this great feast, which is a metaphor for heaven itself, will include people from all nations, not just Jews. The Lord's people will come from every nation, tribe, people, and language, as it says in Revelation 7-9. Over the many years, though, the Jewish teaching surrounding these prophecies, like this one in Isaiah 25, taught that this great feast was to include only Jews. But Jesus says that many will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast. In other words, all kinds of people will be seated at the great banquet, counted as God's people. And further, there will be some subjects of the kingdom, he says here, who will not have a place at the table, but they will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These subjects of the kingdom that he's talking about are Jews, not all Jews. The people he's, he's talking to that are around him, they know who he's talking about. It's hard to imagine what a shock this must have been for some of these people to hear. They have spent their whole life believing that they are God's chosen people and they have an automatic entrance ticket into the great feast of heaven and now Jesus says some of them will be denied entrance. And it's ironic when you put that in the context here that, that Jews believed it was a defilement to eat with Gentiles at the time. And here Jesus tells us that at his great banquet, both Jews and Gentiles will be seated together eating and celebrating what the Lord has done for them. Jesus makes very clear that the kingdom of God, salvation, heaven, the blessings of the Messiah are not a Jewish people only thing. It's available to all people. All are invited to come. Entrance into heaven is not based 
on a person's ethnicity or any other distinguishing characteristic that human beings use to one-up each other and exclude each other. Entrance into heaven is by faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.26, Paul wrote this. So in Christ Jesus, <clears throat> you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Do you remember? I mentioned at the beginning today that God made that promise to Abraham that he would bless all people through the seed of Abraham. And now we read in Galatians. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise that God made. Verse 13 says, Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Jesus heals the Roman centurion's servant without ever having seen him. Jesus said, let it be done just as you believe it would. And in that simple sentence, Jesus captures the nature of faith. It, it's not about having enough faith. It's about having faith in the right one and having faith that expects in proportion to the one we have our faith in. Jesus has authority and power over all, and so it is a faith in Him that trusts in Him for all. Verse 14 says, When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. So, Peter's mother-in-law is suffering with a severe fever when Jesus comes to the house. He sees this. We're not told the cause of this fever. Some scholars speculate that it may have been malaria that she was suffering from, but we don't know. Whatever the illness, Jesus, he comes to her, he tenderly touches her hand, and the fever immediately leaves her. She is immediately healed, and she gets up, and she begins to do what she has always enjoyed doing, tending to her house guests. I love these descriptions of how Jesus heals people. There's not all these weird attention-getting gyrations that we see that faith healers are doing, yelling in people's faces, knocking them in the forehead, <laughs> waving their coat around, and all this crazy stuff. He just comes to her, and he touches her hand. She's healed. 
because he has real authority and power. It's believed that Jesus often stayed at Peter's house in Capernaum during his time of ministry. <coughs> Excuse me. During his time of ministry in the region of Galilee. It, it must have been a pretty busy household, Peter's household. Because in addition to Peter's own immediate family and his mother-in-law who lived there, it appears based on Mark 1.29 and other places that his brother Andrew and his family also lived in that household. And Jesus was a regular house guest. Interestingly, remains of what is believed to have been Peter's house in Capernaum are still there today. Uh, I have some photos here for us. This is an aerial view of some of the remains of the ancient town of Capernaum. And I've pointed out there some key locations. There's a modern Catholic church that has built, been built right over the remains of Peter's house to help preserve it. And this next picture here is a photo of that same Catholic church that sits over the remains of Peter's house. The church is elevated on these big pillars so that the remains of Peter's house can be seen underneath the church. And you can see the remains of the ancient city of Capernaum in the foreground there from the time of Jesus. And I think it's interesting, especially when you're there, to consider that Jesus walked on those very roads and alleyways. And then in the last photo there, it's a closer shot of Peter's house under the modern day church. You can see kind of the, the structural members of the church above it. And then surrounding it is remains of a fourth and a fifth century church which had been built around the remains of Peter's house back in those days, obviously in an effort to preserve them then. Fascinating stuff to see stuff like that. Verse 16, Matthew 8. It says, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. So that same evening, many people who were either sick or demon-possessed were brought to Jesus and healed. Well, why evening? Why did they bring them to him that evening? Well, we learn from Mark and Luke's accounts of this same story that it had been a Sabbath day. It was against Jewish Sabbath rules to carry a person on the Sabbath, so they wait until sundown when Sabbath was over, and then they bring their loved ones to Jesus to be healed. Matthew points this out as being a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, like Matthew has often already done in his gospel, as we've noted, and he'll do uh, again, and he quotes here from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. In this concluding description that we have 
of Jesus healing all these kinds of diseases and exercising demons from people, we see that there is no sickness, no affliction, no trouble, whether physical or spiritual, that Jesus can't handle. There is no thing in all of this world that is not subject to the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. And that includes whatever is going on in your life and my life. As an argument against the skeptic who would suggest that the miracles that Jesus performed were few, isolated, unverifiable stories that took place. I want to point out that right here, we have Jesus healing large numbers of people in the middle of town, in front of large crowds of people. These healings were not a few isolated occurrences. And the miracles that we have recorded in the Bible represent only a fraction of all that Jesus did. In closing today, I'd like to do a couple of things. First is I, I want to read this passage from Ephesians 2, chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. where the Apostle Paul is explaining, really, to the Gentile believers in Ephesus at that time, the theological significance of what we've read today, what we saw in this story with this Roman centurion and his servant and the things that Jesus said in his interaction with him. Paul really kind of pulls some of the significance of that together in this passage in Ephesians 2.11. There are similar passages all over in the New Testament, but I thought that this is a good one to illustrate this and help us to see this. Paul writes, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands and that means the Jews. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jew and Gentile, one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body, his body, Jesus' body, to reconcile both of them, Jew and Gentile, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility, he came and preached peace to you who were far away, you Gentiles, and peace to those who were near the Jews. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and are also members of his household. Finally, those of you who are followers of Jesus, I want to remind you of this great banquet that is waiting for you on the other side of this life. We read this passage earlier this morning, but I want to read it again in closing because it's such a beautiful, encouraging scene for us to look forward to. Isaiah 25, verse 6. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is your feast. You're going to be sitting here eating at this banquet. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that in folds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, he will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Amen and amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You that You have, through Jesus, invited all of us in to Your great banquet. You've adopted us as your children in Christ. We are now counted your people because of what Jesus has done. I pray that you would encourage your people this week with that thought that that would just, you would remind us again and again this week of that profound and beautiful truth that we are your people and we're going to be sitting at your banquet feast celebrating what you have done for us. And I pray for anyone here, Lord, that has not received Christ as Savior, has not become a follower of your son Jesus yet, that today would be the day that they do that and that they too can then find their place at this table, your table, Lord. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.